On this episode of The Fieldhouse Files, I'll talk about Donnie Walsh moving on and his impact with the franchise spanning many decades. And then Jared Weiss joins to discuss the first week of games, the Pacers' trade talks with Boston for Gordon Hayward, and Victor Oladipo's options this upcoming offseason. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. Happy New Year's Eve, everyone. It's the final show for 2020, and to begin, you have to start with Donnie Walsh. As I first reported on FieldhouseFiles.com, Wednesday morning, Donnie is stepping down from his post as a team consultant. It's a title and role he's had with the franchise for seven years now, remember when Larry Bird came back after his one-year sabbatical, Donnie Walsh had filled in that previous year in the meantime. Well, then once Larry came back, Donnie stepped down to a, a lesser role, but still very much around the franchise. And that's the biggest thing that I'll always remember about Donnie was his accountability, how he was always present, how he's always watching, how he's always making observations, and also just the type of human he was. I can't tell you the hundreds of people over two plus decades that I've at least seen that before Pacer games, Donnie would always be out on the court. He would always be sitting on those courtside seats right next to the Pacers bench, never on the Pacers bench, but right next to him. And one by one, at least a couple people probably per game would come down, at least say hello to Donnie or shake his hand, maybe even sit next to him and have a conversation. I can't tell you how many times I did that myself whether it was on the record or just shooting the shit, to be honest, because he's a brilliant basketball mind. And also, whenever I was writing about maybe the franchise, its history, or a longtime team employee, whether that's Ryan Carr or Peter Dinwiddie, Larry Bird, I would always include Donnie in that. You'd have to because he's a lifer with this franchise, and I generally hate the Mount Rushmore-type conversations, right, the sports talk conversations that there often are in the summer. Let's do it, though, for this. When you think about the Mount Rushmore of the Pacers, it starts with Mel and Herb Simon, the Simon family. You got to be Slick and Nancy Leonard as well. Reggie's got to be up there as a Hall of Fame legendary player figure for the franchise, and I think Donnie has to be right there as well. I think it's that group, no doubt about it, at least in my mind. Because when this franchise started to have success, Donnie was right there in the middle of all of it. It's one of the big reasons why one of the two practice courts at the St. Vincent Center bears his name. Walsh started with the franchise back in 1984. It was the year after Herb and the late Mel Simon bought the team there in 1983. A few years later, we saw Donnie make the biggest decision of his Pacers career probably, and that was drafting Reggie Miller over the hometown favorite of Steve Alford. And the rest is history. The franchise has reached the postseason in 25 of the last 31 years. They haven't drafted inside of the top 10 truly since 1989. They're a model of consistency. They're a model of being a good team that's always in the picture. Yes, they, they need to get to the great level. They need to be a championship caliber team more often than not. But they're always right there. They're almost always a playoff team, and that's something you can count on. And Donnie is a big reason why. And after the news was out, Reggie Miller shared my post. I appreciate that, Reg. And also had this to say in that tweet. Thank you, Donnie Walsh and the Pacers. You take a risk slash gamble on me when others look the other way. I have always appreciated our friendship and your advice over the years. May the next chapter of your amazing book 
be just as rewarding. Later that day, I talked with Miles Turner. He's been around longer than any other player on this current roster, drafted by the team in the first round in 2015. So I asked him about Donnie's impact and what he'll remember. Well, yeah, that's news to me. Um, wow, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, you know, Donnie, he's, I mean, the first time I ever talked to him was my draft workout when I came here. And he just, um, I think that he was just really high, high on me, high on my potential. And, you know, we had great discussions about amongst that. He just wished me the best of luck. And then, you know, I happened to end up here in Indy. And um, the fact that, you know, my first three years, he was at every single practice, always talking, always positive, always evaluating. Um, I think just being able to pick his brain about certain things was was fun for me as a young player and um, really beneficial. Um, you know, Don has been nothing but great to me. So, um, and great to his organization. The success he's had over the years here, you know, over past really several years here, you know, it's been incredible. You know, he's able to bring a small market team into to contention, contention every year and um, a lot of um, regular season success. And that's something that just doesn't happen at a snap of a finger. So something he had to orchestrate, something he had to put together. So I have nothing but the fondest memories with Donnie and I wish him the best of luck. And, you know, it's the future endeavors. Donnie is a candidate for the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame under the contributor category. We'll see if he'll get in. He's been a candidate for many years, but more than anything, he's a guy that's been a basketball lifer who loves the game, who loves being on the practice court, watching players, evaluating players, talking with them, figuring out what makes them tick, and much more. And I want to continue this conversation. So on the next episode, I'll talk with longtime Pacers PR man David Benner, who previously covered the team in Walsh as well. He'll join on the next episode to talk more about Donnie. As we wrap up 2020, I wanted to look back at What's gone on in the Pacers' world over this last week as they've gotten off to a very good start taking care of business at home and are atop the Eastern Conference standings along with several other teams here as we wrap up the first week of the season. So to do that, Jared Weiss will join me. He used to be my colleague over at The Athletic. He continues to write about the Boston Celtics and the rest of the league right there so you can check out his work. And he also has his own podcast and frequently appears on the Daily Ding. As we head into 2021, I want to thank all of those of you who have listened, who have shared the podcast, who have subscribed, who have been part of the conversation no matter the platform. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you're subscribed to this show to listen to both new and archived episodes. At this point, you can listen on just about any audio platform, whether it's Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, etc. All right, as promised, I now welcome in Jared Weiss. You read him on The Athletic talking about primarily the Boston Celtics, but also so many league-wide things. He did a great job covering the Miami Heat in part during their run to the NBA Finals last year. But it's funny, we had a call about a week ago. I think it went like two hours. I was like, Jared, what are we doing? We should just record a podcast. So here we are. I'm not driving home this time or uh, getting locked out of the gas station at two in the morning, but this will suffice. People might laugh at us, but there's so many conversations, not even like productive, meaning like reporting, but just conversations at like midnight, one, two, when we're all just kind of finishing up, or I think I was having a drink after the game that night, like finally able to relax. Those are our hours. Oh, it was great because I I had to do the long, cold walk to the car from the arena and, (laughs) you know, I was trying to stop to grab some gas and get some midnight snacks, stuff like that. So to do it, catching up with a buddy the entire time, you know, usually when you're done covering a game, it's like midnight and you're still wired and you're going to be up for another couple hours. Completely. So being able to get all that energy out, talking to somebody and then get home and be ready to crash. It's the best feeling in the world. 
week one of the season complete. It's crazy that's flown by like that. Four games in, uh, Pacers three and one. They started off three and zero, oh, and I think the first thing um, we should talk about is the fact that this week just na- announced today uh, of the four hundred ninety-five players tested, zero positive. So after a few over the last couple uh, of tests, zero this week. That's a strong start, I would say, as teams are beginning to to travel and stay within their bubble. And as it relates here locally, I should bring up, for example, Brad Stevens. He was here for four nights. Didn't can't leave his hotel. Can't go see. Hinkle Field House or visit with friends, they are constrained to their hotel. I mean, maybe he pulled the James Harden and he ended up making it rain <laughs> at one one of Indy's uh, luxurious establishments. But the Red Garter, I, baby. There you go. <laughs> wow, I like that name. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, yeah, we know Brad. Brad is uh, he's not much of a partier. I'm sure some of the players try to find some ways to keep themselves busy there, but. It's it's got to be weird because that's the, the funny thing now is this was the first time for the Celtics I assume for the Pacers too that they had one of these home and home they can't call it home and home series it's just like you know a mini series out in one location yep. and uh, they I, I think probably prefer it even if they're kind of stuck in the hotel for a few days at a time as opposed to being home it's like it's better than having to do a three a.m plane flight across the country which nobody ever really enjoys so I I thought it was pretty fascinating yeah I think that's one of the big takeaways from what we saw six months ago in the bubble is how much fresher guys were and and more comfortable and and not sleep deprived either throughout those games because they didn't have to travel they didn't have to travel across the country for that matter for different games so this is one thing we both were on the call when Brad Stevens before the first matchup was talking about yeah I love this let's let's continue this it has that college feel it's better for all of us um so I I do hope it continues well beyond this season yeah and you know what most importantly both of the games are exciting they were (laughs) exactly what Mm -hmm. we figured they would be I mean these are two teams on pretty similar levels I mean I I think even if the Celtics won that last game, I think the Pacers are clearly a better team at this point. And once the Celtics get fully healthy, they'll probably be on their level then. Um, but the fact that we were able to get it, it was funny because that first game ended so triumphantly for Indiana. And it was just so, it felt like a playoff situation where you get to see that big finish and then they have to go back at it a couple nights later. That's what really made it so thrilling. It did on the court, but I'll tell you, being up in the club level, one of the few media members like there, that's where you really miss the crowd, right? And I think the same could be the argument for the Pacers where they were. it looked like they were run down a little bit and were lacking late in that second game. That's where oftentimes you'll see that home crowd help build a rally and, and energize their team. And with no home crowds, you just don't have that. So that's where I think when you look at home records this year, it'll be it'll tend more towards 500 than above that. Well, are they pumping in crowd noise into Banker's Life? Yes, you are hearing some crowd noise. The music is just as loud as it was with a full <laughs> crowd, which is kind of frustrating. I, I have my Air, AirPods in with noise cancellation, and it's still even loud to that point. But, yes, you can hear some of the, the reaction. So after a, a defensive stand or a good basket, there's some kind of reaction. Because I was frustrated because I was going to Celtics games at first because I was like, this is great. With the arena empty, I'm going to be able to hear all the play calls, hear nope. everything going on the floor. No, it's even worse. It's uh, Now it's actually better to stay home because they at least have the on-court uh, microphones and you can hear some of it. So I'm staying home now because it's actually better access to do it from the couch. 
That's really interesting. Yeah, you would think that would be one of our advantages. Or even if you couldn't hear specifics, you could hear how this coach really lit into his team during a timeout. Well, no, not at all. Pacers, in fact, are still having their game DJ come in. So they're fully on board. Even the mascots there, which I get a kick out of. Yeah, I mean, I'm friends with the Celtics DJ, so I want him to keep working. So I'm <laughs> right. happy for him. But I'd at least like to have a break from the crowd noise during the game. One of my first takeaways from these two games, and it's very early, obviously, Celtics without Kemba. We don't know when he'll be back, but he was out shooting pregame before the second game, I, I do remember, was that I think early on I felt like the Pacers were the better team currently. Um, they're, it's been amazing how much they continue to buy in and hype up their new head coach. Maybe it's a little bit of a honeymoon period, but they really like the fact that there are adjustments made, how positive he is. And so far, I think with this 3-1 and one start, although the first two opponents were no good, the Knicks and the Bulls, I think this is a, a good start for the team considering a shortened training camp, really only had about seven true training camp practices, and now trying to institute a new system mostly. You know, it's funny because Brad Stevens was actually praising Nate uh, before the game about how he was building off of the previous Nate's system and not really overhauling completely which... <laughs> that was that to me and I was I asked him that and to me that question was or that answer was I don't want to throw another coach under the bus we're all in this together <laughs> exactly who Brad Brad's really one of the uh, the leaders of that cause I've never heard him say a negative thing about anybody uh that's on the sideline but um you know, if, I mean, if you look at what Indiana's doing, there's clearly a lot of the same elements from last year's team. But one thing that, that I did notice is that they seem to have much bigger uh, – or they seem to overload on defense a lot more than they did before. And that was causing them problems in the second half when the fatigue was starting to set in and yeah. Boston was getting a lot of leakouts that was really starting to force that. Uh, and then Boston would get some driving kicks, and which the Celtics are already struggling trying to generate that kind of offense. And then when they would start doing that, Indiana just wasn't really recovering out to those shooters, and that was definitely a problem. Yeah, they're picking up a lot more full court. They're they're pushing out. So like even the bigs are defending their man thirty feet from the basket, and so that's why I feel like they did wear down a little bit and got a got a bit tired with this new playing style. And then and then of course the Celtics played really well, pushed the pace and got to the basket, got to the free throw line. I give them a lot of credit. I think they attempted 37 free throws um, in that second game, and that that was ultimately the difference in what was, I think, a five-point win. You know, the thing is, I thought that with the new coach, especially this one, that they would not start Miles anymore. And oh, you'd, you'd, you'd mess with his mentality, though. That's the thing. <laughs> you can't do that. These are bigs. We saw that somewhat with Roy Hibbert. And you know what? If you, if messing with the player's mentality is uh, is the top priority for the organization, then you might have a problem with the player there. Uh, and I, I think everyone in the world knows they got to move on from Miles just because they got to modernize. And although there has been a lot more double big around the league this year, I mean the Celtics are currently doing it just out of necessity because they don't. Tristan Thompson and Daniel Tice are just the two best, most qualified players that they have outside of their three core guys, so they just have to start both of them right now. But um, they, it's just like you can get away with playing a high-pressure defense if you have four guys that are perimeter players that can handle all that kind of running. But when you have two bigs out there at the same time, those are just two guys that are going to look really slow and sluggish once you know they start to wear down. And so I just I think that they I, – I, I, I figure they got to have at least one of the holidays in the starting lineup. 
Like that just seems like it's kind of like a pretty obvious recipe for success defensively if they do that. And I think offensively it would probably open things up even more for them. So I'm surprised that they aren't doing that yet. And I hope for Pacers fans that that's something that they eventually get to. Yeah, one of the early things that has surprised me is we haven't seen Nate Bjorker in experiment as much as he kept hyping up or plans to do at least. I think maybe in their early going, he just wanted to figure out what he had, what he was working with and those sorts of things. But, I mean, he's only been playing uh, eight, nine guys max. He's been playing kind of the regular rotation. When Vic did not play in the first meeting because it was the second night of a back-to-back, he did start Aaron Holiday. Um more towards what what you want to see with Holiday there. But still, I think we do need to see a time when when you maybe stagger the bigs even more so because I just don't think that's sustainable long-term in this league. And, I mean, how does it change when Goga gets healthy again? Then you have... You have this pressure to try to make your your starting lineup a little bit more versatile, a little bit faster, but then you have another another center that you want to be getting minutes, so it, it just it creates even more of a logjam. The sad reality there is who knows when that will be because so much of his early year-and-a-half career has just been derailed by crazy things and most recently injuries. He's out indefinitely, so I think that thought probably is on the back burner, though you raise a good point. you got to figure out again what he is. And the Pacers picked up the rookie option of his third year, as expected. But you, you, he hasn't got a lot of quality minutes, and so he hasn't developed and showed us really anything yet. Yeah, and I mean, p- picking up that option is a no-brainer, right? It's like you gotta you know, with with these first-round picks, they're getting paid so little. It's it's always worth it to keep them going. But hey, I mean, he. I assume that they would pick him up for that, that the year afterwards at the end of this season, or I guess entering next season, uh, just because he has enough promise. But he hasn't really done anything at all so far. And like, we, they got to get him out there and have him show at least something. But at the same time, the Celtics, they just picked up Robert Williams, his uh, fourth year option. And he definitely has shown a little bit more than Goga's had a chance to, but he's had a pretty similar experience so far in the league as far as just being unhealthy and then being stuck at the back of the depth chart. I'll tell you what, Jared, one of my big takeaways from these last couple of games is just how much the Celtics have changed. You do have kind of the tandem of Tatum and Brown throw smart in there as well. But like Thompson got that double-double, former Pacer and Indiana native, Jeff Teague's there, Robert Williams, Peyton Pritchard, and I laugh about that for one because Brad before the game was asked about Peyton. And of course he's in Indy and he's from Indy, so I'm like, wait, what about his relationship with Peyton Manning? Why are they asking about this? Oh, yeah. Peyton. And then Pritchard. Could it be Kevin Pritchard's son, the team president of the Pace? No, it's not. But that his name brings up two totally different ideas when he was brought up, and he played very well. Yeah, it's funny. Before the game, Stevens was saying uh, that if Peyton Pritchard could just stay in bounds the entire game, he would be very impressed by that because Pritchard – uh, coming obviously coming out of the Pac-12 this year, he keeps stepping out of bounds when he catches the ball in the corner. And I asked him about it after the game. He had he, you know laughed about it, just saying I have no idea what's happening. I mean, obviously what's happening is the space in the corner gets a little bit tighter when he gets to the NBA. So you just you know it's a bit of an adjustment getting used to that, but he'll figure it out. But he's been looking pretty good to the point that he's actually been better than Jeff Teague so far. And Jeff Teague, it's been a weird experience for him in Boston. He looked incredible in preseason and opening night was shooting lights out, getting to the rim with ease. And then he 
basically hasn't made a shot since then. It's been a nightmare for him since then. So, you know, we'll we'll find what the equilibrium is for him at some point. But at least he doesn't look washed the way that he did last year. You know, last year I thought his career was about to be over. And this year he has way more energy in him. He's actually working pretty hard on defense. So I'm sure he'll be a pretty solid player for them. But, you know, like you're saying, it's like they're, they're, they're missing two max players right now. They lost Gordon Hayward and they haven't replaced him yet. Well, they will at some point, but it hasn't happened yet. And then Kemba Walker's out probably till I would guess late January, if not later than that. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't really know yet. But yeah, they're really hurts. thin. They're really thin. And for their wing depth, after losing Hayward, Romeo Langford is the guy they want to take the next step. And you guys are pretty familiar with him in Indiana. Mm-hmm. And he actually has shown some. You know, he didn't really get to do much his rookie year, and he had to basically turn into a three and D guy for them. And he did actually a pretty decent job at that, but he showed some flashes in the bubble that that ball handling capability that he has that could make him a really good NBA player. It is there, and he started to show a little bit of it, but then he tore his wrist that turned out to be a really serious injury, which is very surprising, and then he strained his adductor. He was going to play through it, but then he strained his adductor, and they are like, all right, now we have to sit him. So he's going to be out until probably February, if not a little bit later than that. And then Aaron Neesmith, who's the other wing that they have, uh, they just drafted him, and they're barely playing him so far. He'll have to play in Wednesday night's game against Memphis because half of the roster is out for that game. But, you know, right now they just have like no wing depth behind smart who is playing point guard and then Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. There's a lot there. And the first thing, as you rattled off all these players made me think of your casual fans around the league, probably playing that Charles Barkley game. Wait, who he play for? (laughs) Because again, like Naismith, who for, for your casual fan, they don't know who these guys are. And Jeff, yeah. wait, Jeff Teague's now with the Celtics. Oh, okay. You got to recalibrate your system a little bit. And then, secondly, you brought up the uh, uh, Pritchard stepping out of bounds. Have you written that story? I feel like that has your name all over it. <laughs> if it keeps happening, I will yeah. for sure. But you know, it was like it was. It happened like three or four times in a couple games. So you know, it was. It's good for a quick joke. But if it does keep happening, for sure, that's definitely a Jared White special right there. No doubt. And then with Romeo very reminiscent with Goga. It's got a lot of talent, a ton of potential. They just haven't been healthy. And we're obviously in Indy. We're significantly tracking Romeo. And is he able to carve out a role? And thus far he hasn't, but I think it's less so about um, his fault and just some dumb luck up there. Well, it's weird because people that really like to follow Indiana hoops know that back when he was playing in high school there, he was dealing with injuries all the time. Uh, wrist injuries, finger injuries, stuff like that. He played with a bad thumb all mm-hmm. of uh, all of his freshman year at Indiana, which really hampered his shooting ability. Although he had way his footwork was what really hampered his shooting ability. But so when he got to the Celtics, he was still recovering from surgery he had on that thumb. And so when they first were doing drills with him after he got drafted, he was still like in a brace, and they had to do. To do all sorts of work to try to like just get him healthy enough to be a shooter again. So he's been playing like with one hand literally tied behind his back or in a brace rather his mm. pretty much his entire young career so far. And so you can see there's just so much potential with them, but it's been this frustrating thing where he just hasn't been able to get out of the starting blocks basically because of the injuries. And you know, you usually you can chalk that up to bad luck for a while, but We've seen a lot of these guys where we thought they were going to be really good players and they just were hurt most of their first few years. And because of that, 
they just never quite are able to grow into the players that you want them to be. And so hopefully for both of these teams, that doesn't happen with their players because I love Goga. I had him as a lottery pick entering the draft. I think okay. it was a great pick for the Pacers. Well, it might not be an ideal fit for the Pacers just because I don't see a team playing with two centers as part of the future for the NBA, really. And, you know, Domus is the team's best player, so you're obviously kind of stuck at the center position. But either way, Goga, I feel like, is a guaranteed rotation player if he can ever get healthy. The thing I like about you, Jared, too, is no, obviously your number one beat is the Celtics, but you talk so well. Number one, I know you like following the Pacers, have friends and family, I think, here but also around the league, and I know you do work with, I think, um, maybe they did Daily Ding on The Athletic and other podcasts if people want to hear you more. But, yeah, this this Pacer team's very interesting. A lot to be excited about, I think. 13 players brought back, new head coach. Um, and, and let's do one more thing before so we can put it to bed. Me and you are well-sourced in this, and we're reporting on it a lot, the Gordon Hayward saga in all of this. Oh, yeah. And I'm – Honestly, still a little bit surprised that he's not in a Pacer uniform, number one, because of how adamantly he wanted to be here. More so how much his family wanted for him to be here. But hold me accountable here. How much am I accessing too much blame here on Danny Ainge? And that's what I did right. I basically said he was the one holding this back entirely. Um, and in doing so, I think he, he botched it because ultimately they didn't get anything for Hayward. No, what they ended up doing was sending two second-round picks to Charlotte for the trade exception for Hayward. Tell me where I'm wrong. I wouldn't say he botched it, but it's he de- it's definitely Danny Ainge's decision for Gordon Hayward to not be in Indiana. So if you want to blame someone, you, yeah. can, you can blame Danny Ainge because from what I understood, Hayward was ready to take the Pacers deal. And they and like it was pretty much set for a few days there, and it was just down to whether the Pacers could give up enough to make the Celtics happy, and they weren't willing to do that. Uh, but also, the Celtics' demands weren't really fair either. I mean, the Celtics wanted it's basically it came down to the fact that the Celtics just didn't value Miles Turner as a positive asset, which has been very confusing for most of us around the league. And I've talked to a lot of people around the league, and while there were plenty of people that just don't wouldn't want Miles Turner. When you consider that they could have had, I mean, I I didn't hear this concretely, but I know that Jay Michael reported that Aaron Holiday and a first round pick were on the table, and that would have gotten me across the finish line if I were the Celtics. But the Celtics, they felt that they could get this trade exception, which is twenty and a half million dollars, and they could use that to rebuild their roster on their terms. And while it would cost them even more draft picks. I mean, you also, Pacers fans can clearly see now, you look at their roster, their roster is already full of young players. Like, they, they they don't have enough room. They don't even have enough room right now to play, like, Carson Edwards, who was an early second-round pick for them. Uh, Grant Williams only played five minutes in that game, and he's, like, a promising young player for them. So they don't need more draft picks. They need more core. They need core pieces. They need experienced players. And they felt that, they didn't want Doug McDermott, who I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want Doug McDermott. He's not making that much money. He's a 45% three-point shooter. I feel like it's a no-brainer, but um, they would rather be able to play the market. And to their credit, the more I started to do research on who could really realistically be attainable, the list that I saw that, that I came down with uh, I, I it made me understand why they passed on that deal. Like, 
if they could get somebody like Aaron Gordon, who's been in a bad, who's been kind of misused in Orlando, has is still pretty young, is on a pretty reasonable contract for a wing. You know, if you can get a player like that and not have to give up that much more, that makes a lot more sense than getting Miles Turner if you're if you just don't feel like Miles Turner is the center of the future for your team. Um, and the Celtics also are pretty adamant about not spending more than the mid level on a center, and they and obviously Turner is making like twice a mid level. So it really came down to that. I think giving up those second round picks, they didn't really care about that. It's like, you know, they got plenty of second round picks to work with. Uh, it's been a while since they've had a second round pick even become a part of their rotation. So <laughs> yeah. they were like, screw it. Like the you know, second round picks are kind of meaningless uh, assets at this point. So, but it, sometimes a, those trade exceptions gamble. are too. I mean, they're very rarely used. I think those Celtics will probably use it. Maybe not all of it, but we'll see. And it's not a given that they will. But they, I mean, I, I can tell you, like, they, they told me off the record, and, uh, or I guess on background, like, yeah, we're going to use that trade exception. Like, they, they didn't, okay. they didn't let, Gort, they didn't turn down that package from Indiana to just maybe use that trade exception. They're going to be hyper aggressive at the deadline, throwing out draft picks, throwing out some of their young players to use that exception. There's no, like, if they don't use that exception, that's a colossal failure. That's mm-hmm. a, that's like a, is Danny Ainge still the guy that should be leading this team kind of uh, level of failure? But I, there's no way it's going to get to that point. They're going to do something with it. Yeah, that deal not happening said exactly what you said in terms of where people, some, value Miles Turner. I thought throwing in, including Doug McDermott, the deal was a steal because I saw like Joe Harris re-signed for like $19 million per year. Doug's around seven and only under contract one more year if it doesn't work out. Um, and, and you know and, you, you get know, him back. And on top of Her- that, the Celtics wanted Hayward back. They made him an offer for four years. But it's, Hayward, he felt, I think you were the one that wrote this, he was he yeah. was ready for a new role, a larger role, and to kind of be appreciated a little bit more. <laughs> it was funny. I um I was using the I was using the fr- the verbiage of maximizing his prime uh, in a lot of what I was writing, and then I saw that Gordon had a quote pretty recently where he used like verbatim what I was writing, and he, <laughs> I wasn't talking to Gordon. That wasn't coming from him. That was mostly just like my own assessment and talking to you know people in his camp and stuff like that. And so yeah, um. I think it was it's funny I remember there was a story that somebody wrote in the Boston media about why Gordon Hayward was a done deal to the Pacers and I read that story and I was actually drafting a story at the time that was set to publish it was going to publish I think 20 minutes after um, the the news broke that he was signing with with the Hornets and so we had to pull the story once we got the news but so um, in the story, I was writing about how, like, yeah, he wants to go back to Indiana, but for him, it his move is not just about going home. His move is about he's 30, he's in his prime still, he's finally back to his prime, health-wise, physically, mentally, all that stuff. He wants to go have a few years here where he plays his absolute best basketball, and he can look back on his career and say... I played at, at at an all-star level in the NBA and I showed that I was a great NBA player. And so and, and not to mention he'd be, you know, he'd be willing to go do that somewhere less competitive if it meant that he could get paid a stupid amount, which he certainly did. Um and so I and then the story I was gonna say, you know, the Knicks and the Hornets are still viable options here. It's not a done deal to Indiana, because if Indiana can't we're gonna deal with the Celtics, it's not like he's gonna take the the I guess 
tax pyramid level or whatever they had remaining at that point. I guess maybe the regular mid-level. It's not like he's going to take the mid-level exception to go play in Indiana, which is what he really would have done if he was so desperate to get home. It was what we saw it was, which is that the guy's still an all-star caliber player, and he wanted the chance to prove it. And based on what we've seen so far in Charlotte, it, he's proving it. He's been phenomenal there. And he also got an opportunity once again to get paid. I was... I mean, I looked at his career earnings, and this contract puts him over like two hundred and seventy-five million dollars for his career. I remember he's going to be in like the top. I was he's going to be like in the top ten ever in career earnings now. It's insane. He's he's done an excellent job managing all that, and it's funny to think back to like Utah, where they didn't offer him the full max in the full years, and that's one reason when he originally signed with the uh, Charlotte Hornets on an offer sheet way back in the day. And players don't forget that when when guys believe in him. Um, yeah, it was just, I I think for Pacer fans, it was frustrating because they see that obvious need. They see how much they could benefit from having a, a bigger wing um, out there, a guy that could really pass and, and maximize uh, everybody else's talents that's unselfish. And that that's a big hole that he would have been able to fill. And more than anything, while they see kind of Victor teeter-tottering about what he says, Hayward would be fully committed to being here and know what it's about to play in his hometown. He did it in college, and he wants he wanted to do it again with the Pacers. And I think that's the important thing if you're a Pacers fan, to if you want to start you know throwing darts at Danny Ainge's face. Remember <laughs> that it wasn't like Danny Ainge was saying, you need to give me your entire franchise. It wasn't like he was asking for Sabonis. He wanted, I mean, he wanted another your, starter is what he yeah, wanted. Yeah, he wanted Oladipo or Warren. I don't know if it was an either or necessarily, but he wanted one of those guys. And I think that's going to look a lot worse if Oladipo ends up walking in free agency, because then from the from a Pacers perspective, it was, well, we just lost this guy. We could have gotten rid of him a year earlier to be able to lock in Gordon Hayward, who clearly is showing that we could have been a contender if we had Hayward in place, which I mean, Oladipo, I think, is based on at least that last game is playing at a pretty comparable level to what Hayward's playing at. So I guess it doesn't change your immediate future, but at least would give you some stability with someone who's beloved in the community and who, you know, would be there to stay. So they could have made the deal if they really wanted to, if they were willing to play pay a steep price. And I can tell you in the NBA, if you look back on all the trades that always happen, all the times that teams were, you know, fighting over the specific pick or this young player and stuff like that, Getting the guy that you want is almost always worth paying whatever price you got to pay. Like, look at the Lakers. The Lakers. That's a perfect example. You're right. Yeah, the Lakers from an asset value perspective, you know, they they probably gave up more than what Anthony Davis is worth in a vacuum, but they also got Anthony Davis and won a championship, and and they made and they maximize getting LeBron. So at the end of the day, it's like a no-brainer, and you would do that trade a million times over. Um, even the Clippers, you know, they, they had to pay that price to get bring in Paul George so they could get Kawhi. I I don't think there's any question. Even if they end up losing this year and it kind of falls apart, I don't think there's any question it was worth taking on that kind of risk. Just how like the Celtics, even though they lost they lost Kyrie Irving and that fell apart, and it cost them. In the end, it really is going to cost them Colin Sexton, who's turning into a good player. But it was clearly still worth that risk because like Kyrie was such a great player. Um, you know, like these risks are were almost always worth taking, especially when you don't have to give up the core of your team. It's like you still have Brogdon, who is just such an obviously perfect fit for this team and a great value, and Sabonis, who is you know proving himself to be a great player in the NBA, a consistent All NBA caliber player. So 
you have that core to build off of, and you clearly just need another elite wing to carry that team. And right now they're kind of stuck in this no man's land where it's like they have Warren, who's a good wing, not quite elite. And then Oladipo, who could be elite if this is consistent and we just... Uh, you know, uh, you, you what? You There's don't a think... lot of question marks with him. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's it's <laughs> not done it until it's done, to. basically. Yeah, yeah. I would argue, though. I think even to this day, still Oladipo is one of those core solid pieces. I think that's kind of their triplets, if you will. That's Sabonis, sure. Brogdon, Oladipo, and if, if with that being what I know is the asking price, I agree with the Pacers for not doing that. I'm not throwing in another one of my starters to get Hayward. I'm not throwing in Warren or Oladipo. But it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how things shake out with Vic. Number one, I think things are working very much in his favor for free agency next year, assuming he's healthy and, and playing well, because so many of those guys have signed up with these new extensions, whether it's Giannis, whether it's Bam, uh, and many other players, Anthony Davis. And so that changes the tenure and the feel and who's available, and that's something we just saw that really benefited Gordon because he was the the prize, if you will, um, free agent at the time just because of circumstance. Can you imagine what the scene was like at the Oladipo household on rookie extension day? Mm-hmm. I mean, he is a guaranteed <laughs> four-year max player now. As long as he stays healthy this year, he's guaranteed to get a four-year max. The, and that's what he's going market, for. The market is wide open from a player supply perspective. He is clearly one of the top couple free agents out there from a talent and age perspective. And there's so much money out there. It's it's a guarantee that he's going to get the max. It's All he has to do is stay healthy this year and continue to play at the level that he basically showed last night that he can play at. Because before all that, Jared, one of my thoughts was, hey, look, maybe the Pacers and Vic kind of need each other by the end of the year, right? Pacers can offer him more, maybe more stability with an extra year. Maybe it wouldn't be for the max. Because right now, I don't think any team should feel completely comfortable giving him a max until we kind of see this season play out. But now it's turning to the point where Vic's going to have some options. He's going to have some decisions here. And so if you're the Pacers and you don't feel like you even have a chance, then to go back to your original point, I think... By the trade deadline, if you're the Pacers, you have to move him. Otherwise, it's an asset lost for nothing, and you can't afford to do that in this market. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, we all, I think we both have reported about how Vic wants to go to Miami, and that's always been his, or I shouldn't say wants to go to Miami. He, he has clearly expressed interest behind the scenes about going to Miami. Um, his and, and his yeah. people wouldn't mind ending up where he Spence his off seasons, yes. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> and Miami lost out on Giannis, and they were positions to be able to make a huge pivot to chase Giannis. Now that they can't, maybe Oladipo could work things out that he actually gets his wish in the end. I, you know, that I don't. I mean, I don't know if he's that good of a fit next to Jimmy Butler necessarily, but it certainly it certainly is back in play for him now. So he could get to have his cake and eat it too. And I'm—I mean, I don't have their cap sheet in front of me, but I think they would. Miami would need to clear out some good, good players uh, to be able to make room for them, and that could turn into a sign and trade that benefits Indiana. Yeah, there, there's so many ways they could figure it out, but I think you're one of them too that mentioned so much about fit in the off season. I'm not sure he's a fit for that team, much like James Harden is not a fit for so many other teams, and so. Even if he's the best talent, I, I'll be curious to see what teams actually have real interest and how many teams just need to spend money on a good player. Um, let's go to back to basketball just briefly here before we wrap up. What have you thought about his play? I think 
Um, his his dribbling sometimes is awfully concerning as he turns it over. I love how he's beginning to attack more and, and be more patient with it. But I th- also saw thought sometimes, especially in that second game against the Celtics, ball got in his hand and he held it too long, was too patient with it, and then you weren't able to capitalize on what the Pacers are trying to do. And that's great ball movement and finding the open teammate. You know, as someone who covers Jason Tatum, there's just nothing I hate more than players that slow the ball down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tatum is maddening. Uh, Oladipo, his best attribute is his explosive first step. Yep. That he like his he's not an elite. He's not a great passer. He's not a great ball handler. He's not a great shooter. His his advantage is he has tremendous agility and acceleration, uh, and, and lifts, and he and he's got great body control. So. His best attribute should be when the, he catches the ball, attacking quickly off of that because he's going to be able to get himself into space, and that's where he. It, it's way easier to make reads when you are dribbling in the paint than it is when you're dribbling outside the three point line because a lot of, half of the defense is behind you and the rest of the defense is collapsing on you and they're running away from your teammates and then you can actually make the play, and we just saw that. There was those actions where he's coming around a curl and gets that handoff and he's going right into the lane. That's when he was making his best plays. The pl- uh, There was that play early in the third quarter where there was like a Celtics kick out and he picked it off and he immediately threw a little touch pass out to TJ Warren. He was quick and decisive and that's where he was great. Uh, you know, all those plays in that, that run where they built out that lead in that last game, a lot of it was just that Victor, as soon as the ball was, was touching his hands, he was passing it off to somebody and then kept moving and trusting that the ball is going to get back to him. And you have to play that way when you're playing with Malcolm Brogdon, you're playing with Doma Sabonis. Those are you know two guys who just have such great court vision and are looking to give the ball up first and foremost. So I think Victor just, he really has to trust his teammates that the more that he trusts them, the more they're going to feed him and make life easy for him. And it's going to cover up the fact that his isolation game, while very capable, isn't, quite as deadly as it was a couple years ago um and it shouldn't be like the guys coming off of injuries and a big part of maturing in the nba is recognizing that trying to create everything on your own isn't the most efficient use of your time and you become a better player the more that you're able to just maximize the brief moments that you have the ball instead of trying to uh, string it out the way that he does sometimes yeah that's well said and i think one thing we saw in the bubble was he settled way too much for that three-point shot, almost trying to drill down, hey, guys, I got a three-point shot, let me show you. And there's some good nights in Chicago. He made all five threes, but then other nights he relies too much on it, or at least has been, and then he's still loose with the dribble. So, yeah, I thought your analysis was spot on. Keep maximizing what you're great at, and that's flying around, getting steals, and getting out in transition, and then – using the the dribble handoff, working with Domas, and getting to the rim. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think what's great, look at Jamal Murray, and or just look at everybody in Denver. Look at how much that they've recognized that even though, like, Jamal's a great one-on-one um, uh, creator, he can run high pick and roll and do all the stuff that, that Victor wants to do from the perimeter. He recognizes that his life is easiest when he's giving the ball up to Jokic and then curling off of him because – his defenders 
are and it's, it's like they're they're living in this miserable paranoia of at any moment if they you know if they if they take their eyes off of uh, Jokic that their Jokic is going to spin around and just throw it down and so everybody's just so focused on them it takes the pressure off of them and Murray has recognized how that can open up so much more opportunity for him and Sabonis is pretty close to Jokic I mean Jokic is maybe the best ever at what he's doing right now. You know, him and Bill Walton, I think, and and, <laughs> yeah. and, and Domas's dad, who's Arvidas. one of my favorite players of all time. Yes. You know, if I, I mean, if Arvidas played in the NBA when he was in his 20s, I think we would be looking at him as like one of the five greatest players of all time. He was, he really was that great. Um, and we're, but we're seeing that the, the genes are there and Domas is understanding all that. And Domas is more than just a center that you can, put up in the mid post and he can just have one guy curl off of him and he can throw it to him the way that I forget who it was, but he had that beautiful kind of like hook pass uh, to somebody who was cutting. Maybe Brogdon for night. a layup. Yeah. yeah that was beautiful. Was. Like that was so beautiful, but he's capable of way more than that. You know, he's capable of doing what like Adebayo was doing for the heat last year in the playoffs. And I, it's great to see that they're really buying that. Or I guess they're really leaning into it, but Oladipo is the one that will benefit more than anybody off of that. And you got he has to buy completely into it. And if he does, he's going to be an all-star this year. Sabonis is just so fun to watch. Guaranteed double-double, plays hard, plays physical, and it's, it's just a thing of beauty watching little, little things, like you mentioned, Jared, the passes, his footwork. Um, and he's, now he's trying to extend his range and it's knocked down kind of a couple threes per game. So that's been an interesting development. Anything else that's, on your mind you want to wrap up with? I'll just say that's scary. If Sabonis is able to shoot, you know, 35% from three on a couple attempts per game, you know, that's when he's entering elite territory. That's where he's entering like foundational superstar to run a team around territory because I think his defense has gotten a lot better too. He's, uh, he's proving to be a pretty good rim protector and a decent, I'd say a decent pick and roll defender. That's, that's been kind of revelatory for me. I, I didn't realize was the case. And, yeah, you know, I just I, I was really in love watching him over these over these last couple games, and I'll definitely be catching every Pacers game this season just to be able to watch his growth. Yeah, it's that pick and roll more than anything where Miles is is far better and more reliable. Um, but yeah, as you said, Domas is getting better, and already Pacers are off to a strong start, three and one. And what's also beneficial is seven of their first nine games at home, so that can help kind of ease them in and during the holidays. I think that's better for them rather than starting out on the road. And of their 38 games, 19 at home, 19 away. It's pretty fairly even right there. So good stuff, Jared. Clearly they miss you, Scott. They just wanted to get more time around you. (laughs) That's, man, I've told you this and I post about it. It's so much fun being back. I love being back at the arena. There's nothing better than an empty arena and just working away. I really wish, honestly, there should be like a business that these companies, that these arena owners do where they just allow like one or two people to pay like $500 to just be allowed to stand in the arena after everybody's gone at like at midnight. It is, it's funny. We're lucky because not a lot of people get to experience this in their life. There's just nothing like being in an empty arena or an empty stadium at the you know middle of the night where it's completely mm-hmm. quiet. You can like, you, you hear someone close a door a thousand feet away from you and you could hear it like they're right next to you. Um, and just this open, the open air and how light it feels. It's the most incredible feeling. And I missed it so much. And 
unfortunately, because coronavirus is going crazy in Boston right now, and it's very scary, I'm going to stop going to games for now just to be safe and yeah. keep my family safe. But I can't wait to get back out there, and I can't wait to get back to Banker's Life because that's one of my favorite experiences um, to watch a game there because of, of any of the teams in the league because of the window because of the natural light that comes in it's like you can't you don't i don't know if there's any other arena i can think of that i've been to that does that and and pacers don't always do that but when they do it is spectacular it's amazing there's it's just it's just like fascinating experience to I, I think brooklyn might have that too and i went to a day game for brooklyn i think they had it but to be at a, an nba game in the during the day and to see the light outside it's just such a unique thing that especially as someone who's you know been going to NBA games for so long and you're just so conditioned to think it's nighttime outside when you're in a game it just feels so remarkable to have that experience it really is it's just so soothing I found when I was at that game last year it was the last the last game that I went yep, to all year it was full circle right there I was and I was spending the whole I was spending spending half the game looking at the window because there were like birds <laughs> flying outside I'm like this is so beautiful and serene I'm like completely ignoring the game going on behind me not knowing this is the last time i'm going to be at a game for what end up being 10 months or so and now there's been significant changes new video board new lower level seating i mean Ooh. i guess you didn't see it because of the ad the banner ads uh, across all the seats now but those seats aren't green anymore jared they're gray and it's it's different a oh, beautiful gray love it <laughs> Yeah, and, and last thing I did want to mention, because you mentioned the sounds you hear when you're in the empty arena, I still have it stuck in my head from last night. There was uh, one maintenance guy going around cleaning the court, like squeaking his feet to trying to clear <laughs> up spots, and it sounded like you know during a game the sneakers, which we can't hear because of the music, because of all the noises, that was a thing of beauty. Now, the sound of a, of a rubber sole squeaking on hardwood is one of the great <laughs> sounds in this world. Can you tell we missed hoops? Yeah, uh, just a little bit. I love it, man. Thanks so much for the time, Jared. We'll be in touch, and uh, you'll definitely be back here. And fans can follow your work at The Athletic, Daily Ding, and any other podcast you're on these days. Uh, the, you know, the Grant and Taco Show, hopefully, will be back uh, pretty soon. So Okay. Uh, but then, otherwise, you can just hear me here talking about the Pacers a few times a year. Thank you, Jared. <laughs>